Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast, Let's Talk EU, in which I try and highlight different views of looking at what it is to, to regulate and supervise financial markets in the EU. And today I have a very interesting conversation with Dr. Alexandra Falgeen, who is a senior supervisor and researcher at the Consumer Behaviour Team of the Authority for Financial Markets in the Netherlands. Now, this is, you know, a recent addition. Normally, when we think about supervision, we would think of people looking at sort of financial issues. But we are more and more going into what we call the the T-zone, other aspects of behavior that are becoming important. And I think your team there is is, is showing quite a lot of the, the way forward. And I'd love to discuss a little bit what the, from the beginning, what, what you have done, some projects, also in the context of the EU. You have been conducting research uh, for quite a while into the role of retail investing in wealth accumulation, methods to elicit risk preferences of pension participants, very important. And you received a PhD in behavioral economics from Harvard University. So again, you know, very highly qualified and very interesting position, innovative, I would say, in, in, um, in the Dutch Financial Markets Authority. So in order, before we kick off the conversation, I just want to highlight some findings from the CFA Institute 2022 Investor Trust Study, which was in, uh, enhancing investors' trust. Now, this trust study is, of course, global, but I think some of the points that come out from, from it, we can base in our discussion. What we have seen in that trust study is that trust across all industries has increased from 2020, and trust in financial services is at an all-time high. Now, that's quite something to say, because of course, we in 2022, we were almost 10 years after the financial crisis. And when probably when we did the trust study in 2016, 2017, I remember that the trust was really not that high and there was still a lot of um, misapprehension and mistrust. Has COVID bettered it? Well, I don't know. Um, what is also interesting is that investor trust has increased to 60% amongst retail investors, but you still see there's quite a way to go because it's 86 amongst institutional investors. Retail investors that have an advisor have a different view from those that don't have an advisor. Again, it's a surprise or not a surprise, but both groups, their trust has increased significantly. Now, two-thirds of those that have an advisor say that their advisor is their most trusted source of advice. Again, this is an increase from 2020. But those that don't use financial advisors, they mainly look at online research, friends and family and social media. Despite the rise of meme stocks, very few investors are currently still are relying on media or social media. But trust in financial news has also grown in 2022, with 70% of those that have advisors and 55% of those that don't have advisors saying financial news is trustworthy. Again, well, that's that's an interesting fact, you know, and I, 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 I myself, I'm still in, in sometimes a doubt about this, about trusting completely financial news because it, it's problematic. But one of the, the, the things that is really clearly an issue when people hire an investment advisor or use an investment firm, what they say that is really important is that that firm or advisor is trusted to act in my best interest. And that's the top priority. That's where, of course, behavior economics then comes in. You know, um, that is really a linchpin. And that's really the top, top issue. 
And paradoxically, also, when we asked the retail and institutional investors, they say their advisors or investment firms, only about a third of them, of the, those we surveyed, actually say that they feel that their advisor puts their interests first. So there is a mismatch in expectations. And I think, again, that is too, I'm sure, why your unit is, is, is working. The factors that break the trust are diverging. So retail investors have consistently ranked the same four items at the top of the list for their reasons to leave an advisor. Performance, fees, data security, and advisor responsiveness. Now, following the COVID disruption, it's not really surprising that responsiveness is actually an interim that increased quite highly as a concern. Three quarters of retail investors still prefer a human advisor to a robo-advisor. This is changing. You start to see Generation Z is there is a change in perception. But again, you know, what is happening with ChatGPT is going to have quite a big impact in the near future. So in 2023, we worked together with FINRA in the US and looked at Generation Z and investing. And just a couple of pinpoints from that before we dig into our conversation. What we clearly see, and this was a, a, a survey that we did in the US, Canada, the UK and China quite different markets. But globally, what we can see is that crypto is a definitely a popular investment among Gen Z investors. More than two in five in the US Gen Z investors are investing in crypto. So that's that's quite, quite big. And then a large number of Generation Z investors started investing before they turned 21. Again, interesting, very young. And that most Generation Z investors, paradoxically, of course, to baby boomers and, and millennials perhaps, rely on social media to learn about investing. So, well, there we are. That is the new context. I would say add to this background what I have found complex for supervisors and regulators indeed is that this is the period in, in the sort of last hundred years where we have to deal with three generations of investors. You know, when we talk, used to talk in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, and 90s about investor, we had one investor, typically white male, probably in his mid 40s, 50s. That was it kind of thing. Nobody, we didn't think about anybody else. But as you saw from the Generation Z survey, you know, we sometimes have under 21, 21 starting to invest. So this is, this is quite a problem, I would say, for supervisors and regulators. Now, Alexander, turning to you and your background and experience, how how did this help you to analyze, you know, and use behavioral economics when looking at designing products and services that are offered to consumers in the Netherlands? And how has the AFM been using your approach to behavioral economics in its supervisory activities? So first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be in this podcast. Yeah, so so my background, I think, was very, uh, very beneficial for the work I'm currently doing. So I started as an academic. I did my PhD in behavioral economics. And after that, I, I, I worked as a professor in behavioral household finance. And then I made the switch to the authority financial markets. And I wanted to make that switch because I wanted to make more impact. And I do find that these skills that I have uh, obtained in academia are very useful, uh, useful here as a supervisor. So my academic training in behavioral economics has helped me to understand how humans make decisions, uh, as well as, of course, understanding economics and finance, which is also a relevant uh, knowledge. So I think this combination is 
very useful because it can help you to understand the problems that are related to the financial markets and investment behavior, but also finding the solutions. And what we've seen lately is that behavioral economics has been getting way more attention from policymakers as well as in the financial sector. And this old idea that we had is as policymakers that once consumers are actually informed, everything will be swell. I don't think that many of people still hold that view. So humans are not robots. Our attention, our computational power, our patience, our time, our motivation is all limited. And we suffer from present bias and we postpone savings for pensions because we don't like to think about getting old. We are sensitive to how things are framed to us. We are overconfident. We have difficulties estimating the future and we are oftentimes reluctant to act. And this causes us to make suboptimal decisions. But that's one thing of the coin. But the other part of the coin is that it happens in a predictable way. And this is good because this means that we as behavioral scientists can take this into account beforehand when designing policy or products or webs websites or whatnot. So to help our products and policies fit people rather than robots, I think these insights are very, uh, very useful. And I think it's especially important when it comes to financial, de financial decisions, because these type of decisions are oftentimes very complex for people. Um, people oftentimes have to have little opportunity to learn, like a mortgage, maybe a two, three time event in a life. Uh, pension, generally only one time. So there's not so much feedback we get to, to, to be able to become better. And thirdly, these decisions have very large consequences, of course, from a welfare perspective. And that's also what we see in behavioral finance literature, is that these tendencies will influence the outcomes for people, the risks they take, their the situation they have at old age, the, the debt that they will take on, and it will also affect, to a larger extent, markets. So for, 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 from our perspective, it's definitely something that, that we should take into account. Alexander, I'm, I'm going to interject with a prime example in my own family of where things can go wrong. Right. So I've been working in finance for the last 35 years. So I'm the yeah. person people go to in my family saying, oh, investments, what do I do? My mother, 20 years ago, around 2000, 2001, when it was the beginning of the dot-com crisis, um, had a big investment portfolio, and she was investing this together with some girlfriends. They called their investment club uh, Goldfinger. That should say something already to you. And they really enjoyed their times meeting their banker because they got good coffee and good biscuits. Less about the actual investments, but more about the good coffee and biscuits. And then I started seeing things happening in the market. And I said to my mother, you know, mother dear, shouldn't you think about, you know, maybe what exactly do you have in your portfolio? Shouldn't you think about maybe unloading and doing something else? And she said, oh, no, Jacina, listen, I can't deal with this at the moment. Your sister's getting married. I have to deal with all her wedding dress and this and that. That's important. What happened? She was focusing on the wedding. She lost 50% of her investment portfolio. Very nice. Yeah. So... That, for me, was always a prime example, and I do cite it quite a lot. My poor mother would hate me if she knew that I was using this example. But I think it's a very good example of what can go wrong. And, you know, to your point, so how can you 
use these behavioral insights to allow the financial advisors to better address the consumers. I'll put that banker at that stage and said, hmm, Mrs. Kamerling, you know, maybe you should be, you know, focusing because it, it, it of course, you know, as you say, you, you are at different stages of your life. You think about different things and, and it, it's a problem. No, no, for sure. And, and, and that's true. I think it also, it already helps if financial advisors are aware of these limitations doesn't sound friendly. This is just how we're made. Like oftentimes our decisions work fine. Our brain works fine, but you know, there are these risks that we face, but I think it already helps to be aware of that. So if financial advisors are, are aware that their clients will not read all the information that they provide to them. And even if they do that, they probably will not incorporate it as well, that their perception of risk are too narrowly focused, that their clients will take more risk after losses because they're loss averse, that they're overconfident, then they will be aware that if they don't interfere, that this will affect the investment decisions that they will make. So I think it's helpful if they're aware of that. But I would also encourage financial advisors to be aware of the fact that they themselves are also human. So there is there are academic studies that shows that also financial advisors are suffering from biases. They can trade too frequently. They can chase returns. They prefer expensive, actively managed funds. They under diversify. So it doesn't automatically um, uh, work work well once you're a financial advisor. You have to also be aware of, of your own. That's the two sides of the equation, right? Yes, definitely. And it's the and when I when I think about retail investors, I often think of that this this sort of triangle. We have product governance, we have the ethical business conduct of the financial advisor, and we have financial education of the investor. And the three need to be in balance. You cannot put a total onus on your investor to understand the latest complexity, to understand his own bias, the bias of the financial advisor. You cannot through actively doing corporate uh, product governance, ban all products, neither. And, you know, letting everything depend on the business conduct of the advisor is also. So you need that balance between these three um, points. And I think that's, you know, looking to how regulators and supervisors can address business conduct issues in the investment industry. I think that that is an important discussion, which we, you know, we, we don't tend to do that much. I mean, I've, I've been present at discussions at ESMA and I've referred to that triangle. And I, I still feel that we sometimes veer too much to one or too much to another um, and that we we don't sort of try and see how we can balance that triangle to be sure that each side plays its role. And probably business conduct is the one that needs a little bit more focus at the moment. Um, are you are you working with other EU regulators on uh, employing methodology on behavioral economics? What, what what is your experience in this European context, Alexandra? Yeah, so so. At we with AFM, we started our team now. It was formally started in 2016. So we were one of the first supervisors to really start a team on consumer behavior. And we really have this luxury of being one team combined of behavioral economists, econometricians, psychologists, really focused on making our supervision more effective by uh, bringing in insights from the behavioral sciences. So this is like a very nice, uh, a nice way that we can work. So also in Europe, it has, uh, behavioral economics 
has been getting more attention. Um, so we have seen in the last few years, a lot of behavioral units were set up in the public domain as well as in the sector. Um, and in addition, there is more attention to evidence-based policy, which I think is a really, really good development. So testing if something works and maybe, you know, if something doesn't work enough. Mystery shopping as well, for example. Yeah. 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 So I think that's good. So I know at, a at uh, in France, we have the AMF. They also have a research unit that looks into behavioral economics. Uh, in the UK, the SCA has one. Um, so we are an exception because we focus purely on, on conduct supervision. Um, then we have European supervisors such as ESMA and IOPA. They're increasingly paying attention to behavioral. So they all have units that looks at behavioral economics. So, so it's more, the expertise is there, but not as focused, I suppose, as, as, as what we, what we, what we do have, but they are organizing early next year, um, a behavioral inside workshop in which we will also participate, uh, it's organized by the European supervisory authorities, ESMA, EOPA and EBA uh, for national supervisors to, um, yeah, to, to make sure that also national supervisor up to speed when it comes to, um, to behavioral economics. So I think it's very important that these units can find each other and learn from each other. And also, yeah, especially with the digital digitalization that you mentioned, yeah. um, it's even more important because products and services are oftentimes digitally offered. And yeah, then I think, uh, it's important that policymakers and financial economic supervisors follow this and also anticipate on that. So. What are the sort of projects that you're doing at the moment to gain insights on the behavior of retail investors? Yeah, so so there's several activities um, that we do as a team. So what we do first is research, and we use all different types of methods. So we do experiments, we do surveys, we do liter literature studies, we do data analysis. So that's really to identify and understand risks for consumers and also retail investors. Um, then also we assist supervision to apply behavioral insights in our supervision tools. So for example, we designed a tool to evaluate the choice architecture in investment apps, um, and also a way to evaluate the way risk preferences are elicited for retail investors. So that's also, so things that we do, um, we train supervisors in the use of behavioral insights. So many of the supervisors at ASM are now comfortable thinking about these issues and implementing them in their daily practice. And we also engage with the sector. So we encourage them to take into account behavioral insights and to make use of an evidence-based approach. And we also do regular research projects together with the sector. So for example, uh, mortgage providers, consumer credit providers, financial providers, we all did experiments with them to see how we could activate uh, consumers. Um, so when it comes to purely the research projects that we did for retail investors, um, one that we did was a big data study about a year ago, where we made use of a very rich panel data set consisting of detailed informations of all houses in the Netherlands. We did that to understand what are the attributes of retail and non-investors. And what we found is that 10% of retail investors did not have sufficient financial buffer to deal with an income or expense shop. So we were worried about that group. They should probably not take on additional risk in the stock market. 
On the other hand, we also found something that we did not expect. And we found that about half of the households in the Netherlands, so that's 3 million households, uh, did have sufficient buffer to deal with income or expenditure shocks. Uh, so we computed that for them individually, uh, but they did not invest. And these people had significant amounts on their saving accounts. So in addition to the liquid buffer that we computed for them, they had about on average about 20,000 euros on their saving accounts. Now, so for many households, they may be a fine situation because of their risk preferences. But on the other hand, the buy and hold strategy with a well-diversified portfolio it does carry limited risk. So we simulated this strategy using different scenarios, um, using an index investment approach. And we found that the investing resulted in better outcomes and saving in about 75% of cases. So definitely was risk involved, but still it give, gave rise to some kind of puzzle that uh, fueled our future, future research. And, and, and do, do you, did you communicate with those households explaining to them? Or do you have a tool on the website? I'm, I'm asking you that because I remember about seven years ago, sitting with some European MEPs, um, talking about you know the issue of how to get retail investors into the market. And I remember with one MEP, we were discussing about um, what was important for people is to have a balance sheet of life. Uh, to your point that 75% of the households in the Netherlands don't even know that they can use some of the stuff they have and in, invested and actually optimized. Yeah, you know, when you have a balance sheet of life, you know, you can see that people don't hesitate to take big debt or they take a big mortgage when they finish studying and, you know, they go 20 years out. But on the other side, on the investing side, they will not do that. And so you then also say, you know, what is important for the for the consumer to learn, but also for the financial advisor, is to understand the life cycle of their client and of, you know, of your own life cycle. So, you know, are you about to get married, divorced? Do you have children? Are your children going in five years' time to university when you need some extra outlays? But can you put your funds fixed for five years? Is that, you know, what kind of risk it? And I think all these kind of nitty-gritty with your survey are starting to come up. And, you know, and my 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 wish at those seven years ago was like, we need like a, 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 in, in each supervisor have like little click thing pattern that you can say. You'll, you put your own kind of wishes for your life cycle in there and then automatically you get kind of, you know, answers and things like that. That was my utopian wish, of course, but I think we're probably still quite far away from that, right? I think we are far away from that, but it does make total sense to have this more holistic view on life and to relate it to, to important life events. And yeah, so I, I, yeah, I understand that, uh, that ideal. Um, so yeah, we did, we did ask people, of course, that we wanted to know as well. So, so why are people not investing? And we asked them in our consumer panel and there, the, the answers that we had most often was that people didn't want to invest because they found it too time consuming or too complicated. And this is suggestive of, of seeing investment as some kind of active activity that requires a lot of study and knowledge. So that is different than what you would have with a more passive strategy, such as holding on an index fund. So it, is, it, it, yeah. it yeah, it reflects a particular perspective on investing that, that people have. Yeah. And I, I, I think it's fascinating. Is this study available for, for, for our listeners? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So we just look at the item website. And we, uh, we, we find, well, that's great. My next yeah. question to you is about, you know, crypto assets. I mentioned in that the generation Z's 
are interested in crypto assets. What what do you see in the Netherlands about people that are buying crypto assets? What are the typical? Yeah. So I think so. So we did a study in a representative panel where we asked people in the Netherlands who owned crypto what their motivation and their financial position was, and we found it was mostly younger men, so men below forty-five, and uh, a large part invested more for an informal reasons, so not to really invest, but more as entertainment, curiosity, um, and generally also not with money that can be missed. So, so seventy-five percent invested below 2,000 euros, so it was limited in that sense. Um, uh, this is different from a publication of US crypto investors that were re re recently uh, published, so we have a different uh, image here in the Netherlands. Um, we do find that especially young people are more likely to invest with leverage, so it was about 20%. Um, and in a recent follow-up study, we went deeper and we really interviewed these crypto uh, owners and we asked them about their beliefs. And well, we found that although these crypto holders generally believe they were very well informed about crypto, that their knowledge was still rather superficial. So they weren't aware really of the risks or, or, or the nature of the platform that we're, that we're using. And it was also interesting that some crypto holders were saying that they found it actually much easier than regular investment. Mm. And I thought that was interesting from a behavioral science perspective, because generally, if you make it easy for people, that's probably the best way to make people do things. Um, so yeah, so that was um, was interesting. And I, I find it interesting because, of course, you know, saying that they they don't know so much of the details. You know, we we had the case, of course, on social media of Kim Kardashian touting crypto assets, and you know, it's to that point. So um, CFA Institute is 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 going to launch uh, the publication of a study on finfluencers. Um, we hope. To have it ready by December, so I'll definitely share that with you in our uh, and it will be for the listeners available on our website. But um, you know, with pleasure. I think we we all need to be far more aware. And and I, I I'll never forget the the French uh, supervisor using finfluencers to explain about what regulation was, and I thought that was also quite an interesting new development. Um, using YouTubers to you know explain because as you say, if investing is made easy by people you identify with, you know, it can create bigger, bigger understanding. Alexandra, I think you have a lot on your plate still. I think the future is going to be more and more interesting with artificial intelligence coming in with all these new generations. I really look forward to keeping this conversation going offline at, and, 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 and catch up with each other. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you today on the podcast and uh, to, to my listeners, look out for all this, uh, look on the AFM, the Dutch AFM website for this study. Look on the CFA Institute website for all these studies we do on influencers, on trust studies and things. And um, keep keep in contact and look out to the next uh, podcast. Thank you so much, Alexandra. Thank you. Thank you so much.